0: as a patient i think you definitely have access to very different services depending on where you live and then as a physician in our field maybe more than in any other field the difference is which services you're allowed to offer and so i think that was the main finding of my career so far
1: welcome to inside reproductive health the shop talk of the fertility field here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patients, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
2: My guest on Inside Reproductive Health today has been around the globe. Dr. Alex Quas completed medical school in Manchester, England. He earned a PhD from Freiburg, Germany. He completed his OBGYN residency at Harvard and his REI fellowship at USD. He went on to spend four years on faculty at the University of Oklahoma. He went to spend time back in Switzerland at the University Hospital of Basel. And in 2018, he returned to the United States to join Reproductive Partners of San Diego. And he also serves as a clinical assistant professor at the University of California at San Diego. You might know him from chairing the Pacific Coast Reproductive Society, of which he was program chair for the 2017 meeting, or you might know him from the many peer-reviewed publications and book chapters that he's authored and co-authored, the most recent of which is on the topic of geographic variations in research and clinical care in the field of REI. Who better to talk about that? That's why he's on the show today. Dr. Kwas, Alex, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: You had some good data to talk about some of the differences, and we're going to get into that. I wasn't even expecting that when you had sent that over. I just figured here's a guy that has practiced in a lot of different parts of the United States that are really different from each other, in parts of Europe that are different from each other, and across these continents in different places would have a good idea anecdotally of what it's like to to practice in different places you have some data and I want to get into that and then I want to get into an anecdotal conversation that you and I have had about the quality of life of choosing a certain area because I talk about that on the show quite a bit but let's start off with just some of of the anecdotal experience you've had uh, how much is it how much differences there in practicing reproductive medicine in one part of the world or one part of the country versus another?
0: There are quite a lot of differences. And actually, so some people spend most of their career in one place, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's obviously some positive aspects to stability in your professional career. But If you do get to switch place from one place of training to another, I think it helps to see how different things are done in different places, because it gives you a perspective which parts of the process are the most important ones. Because for example, let's say as an example, I recently mentioned to my fellowship director, Dr. Rick Paulson, that it was really quite an insight for me to practice with five different attendings at USC because every single one of them was telling me how to do the egg retrieval slightly differently. And so I said to him, well, what that taught me is that maybe the technique is not quite as crucial and that they still all had had very similar success rates. So when you see practice being Done differently in different parts of the world, or even inside of one institution, it helps you put into perspective which parts of the process are the most vital to success.
2: So you notice from that point that there's just a difference to begin with. You've got five different attendings and five different ways of learning about egg retrieval that that's you learned okay, so there's not. A uniform way that every single person does it every single time. At right. What point because
0: then, and because that—that's probably because those people had trained in different places under different mentors, and those were subtle differences. You know, it was like, do you twist the probe a little bit at the end, or you know, for example, for the embryo transfer, do you stay inside the uterus for thirty seconds before you take out your cath- catheter? These are small differences that you see from maybe one uh, or subtle differences from one attending to another or from one practitioner to another that you learn from. But then moving from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Midwest or moving from America to Europe made me realize that there are also more like striking differences between places. And so I think that I got a pretty good perspective which of these differences are actually impacting care and which one of them are <clears throat> maybe more of a style uh, point. Like, for example, how, how exactly you perform a procedure it may just be how you trained, and maybe people have the same success rates with that. But then there are maybe more striking variations that actually do have an impact on care. For example, when I first arrived in Basel, Switzerland, you know, all the egg retrievals were, were done without anesthesia or just with local anesthesia and so at first I thought well you know let let me see how that that pans out and I was able to form an opinion about this and what I realized is that because it was done under local anesthesia the patient might have felt some discomfort at times. You had to be extra gentle. And so maybe the egg yield may be lower, and maybe that may actually have have an impact on success rates. And actually, midway through the year in Basel, we changed it there and ended up using Propofol, like is the standard of care in the United States, for the egg retrieval. Another example is, for example, that the, the mentor I worked with in Basel was insisting that we use a tenaculum to grasp the cervix for the transfer, which is something that, for example, in the United States, every time I talk to uh, somebody about that, they were uh, kind of appalled about that. So anyway, just to, and, and that probably has also been shown to not be beneficial for patients. And so it showed me, these kind of observations showed me that where you live in the world, as a patient, obviously also as a practitioner, because how you 're trained has a profound impact and i I felt like this may be one area of medicine where the differences may be more striking than anywhere else, because we 're a young field like ivF is only forty one years old we 're an emerging field we 're a, a field that every year there are new developments, and I feel like what i 've also observed is that there 's a A lot of different ways to interpret the literature because, you know, in Europe, there were certain, you know, schools of thoughts were taught to people that were almost fundamentally different to the way I was trained in the United States. So
2: how, how do you know for certain that this is not just something that was at this hospital in Basel, uh, how, how do you know that it's the, the local anesthesia example, for instance, that that's something that's practiced continent-wide or at least country-wide or broader than just the, the program that you're at? How do you, when does the difference strike you that this isn't something that's just happening here at this program, but rather happening at a national or
0: multinational level? Oh, I think that what was actually fascinating was that within Europe, there are like massive differences, you know, like in the space of, you know, 100 miles, you know, you cross the the border from one country to the next, and you might have a completely different way that people practice and completely different legislation, ethical views on things, uh, cultural differences. And so even within Europe, there's a lot of differences. And that was actually quite fascinating. And by the way, I don't want to say that the standard of care was necessarily way lower in Basel, Switzerland, for example, but that there were just differences. So for example, in this paper that I wrote for JARG that you mentioned about local privileges and not universal rights, which basically was the description of the geographic variations in the science and clinical practice of reproductive medicine, I mentioned that, for example, for hypothalamic amenorrhea, so for women who do not ovulate because of hypothalamic causes, In the United States, we always had to do gonadotropins or use gonadotropins. In Europe, for example, there's a pump that is licensed in many places, and it's a pulsatile GnRH pump that very elegantly basically treats the underlying cause, which is the insufficient secretion of GnRH, which has to be given in a pulsatile nature. And that pump could just as easily be used for in the united states it's just not available so that for example was an advantage there so not everything was necessarily worse but for example in switzerland you know since you since you asked whether you know that that was just a local phenomenon these differences in care or more like continent-wide or country-wide so switzerland i would say the practice of IVF is probably relatively uniform within the country of Switzerland. There's only like four or five you know, universities that offer IVF and then some private practices. So within Switzerland, it's probably relatively homogeneous and a small community of practicing REIs. Within Europe, for example, let's say if you compare Switzerland to Spain or you compare Switzerland to Belgium. Or other countries, you know, there are marked differences, and these are usually due to culture and legislation, and then also the uh, insurance landscape, land, landscape, and the healthcare system as a whole. So, for example, in Switzerland, you know, I, I was very fascinated by this. For years and years, they had a relatively restrictive reproductive law that, at the core of it all, it, it restricted the freezing of blastocysts because what they basically legislated was that it was only allowed to develop as many fertilized human eggs outside the female body as can be immediately implanted. So what this means is that they differentiated between a zygote, which is basically the day after the egg Gets fertilized, so you know on the day of the retrieval we have an egg. We inject the sperm into it, and then the day after we call it a two PN. So it's a it's a, a fertilized oocyte at a two pronuclear state or a zygote. And essentially, so the Swiss in this legislation said it still has the two pronu- pronuclei. So the male and female genetic material hasn't really properly fused yet, and therefore that can be frozen but you can only grow as many of these to the blastocyst stage as you can immediately implant. You're not allowed to freeze them. So what they did is they had this like relatively suboptimal system where let's say uh, a patient has 15 eggs retrieved, 12 fertilized, let's say. Three of them Which the practitioners felt like was a a quantity that would develop into a reasonable number of blastocysts. Three of them could be cultured and grown to blastocyst stage, and the rest would be frozen at this two pronuclear or zygote stage, which they didn't consider consider an embryo yet. As far as, you know, like when I thought once you put the sperm in, Basically, you know, you you know, fertilize the egg, and you know, it's like the philosophical and ethical question: when does life begin? And you know, in this country, there's a big discussion about this too. But essentially, what that meant was that women sometimes had this very cumbersome treatment course, where they might have had 12 or 15 of these fertilized oocytes, but every time three were thought, it was completely unpredictable how many of them would become embryos. And sometimes it was too few, and sometimes it was too many, so some of them, sometimes all of them would arrest, and then the transfer had to be cancelled. And some of, sometimes three of them would grow to the blastocyst stage, and then occasionally there was a decision made to transfer two blastocysts, even though, you know, as a young patient with good blastocyst quality, you shouldn't transfer more than one. So it was basically this unpredictable lottery, and so either it didn't work at all, or oftentimes it was associated with twins. So then thankfully, they changed the law. And so in Switzerland, when something is changed, the population always has these referenda. So basically they they do a a popular vote for certain things. So let's say if, 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 you, if you feel like all the street signs, uh, you know, should now be blue uh, and they were green before, then you can collect signatures, you know, from a certain number of people and then it goes to a popular vote. So basically... basically a popular rep-
2: vote on the ballot? Yeah. at the same time that they're voting for nationwide candidates and that, that those are all sure. nationwide referenda or are they local yeah referenda?
0: yeah exactly so so there's certain dates you know where all these questions are being put up for ballot and then you go into you know you go into, into your voting booths and you you vote on like 20 questions and so this reproductive law came up for what a, a, a vote legislature for that <laughs> well, you know, they, they they actually, you know, they have a very interesting political system, and you know, basically, the Swiss believe that you know every every voice should be heard, and I mean, obviously, there's still some some things that the legislators still have to do, but anyway, so finally, luckily, in June 2017, uh, sorry, June 2016, it came up for vote, and then it's September 2017 because the vote was won to change this reproductive law. Basically, this kind of obstructive rule was done away with, and now it's possible to culture all embryos to the blastocyst stage and then transfer one embryo at the blastocyst stage and freeze the rest. And also, in the process, pre implantation genetic diagnosis was also something that was allowed going forward. But, you know, there were many interesting things, like, for example, same sex female couples or single females are not allowed to use donor sperm. Donor sperm in the legislation is only allowed for straight married couples where the husband has a sperm problem. That's the only indication where donor sperm is allowed. And so then what happens is that single females who want to become pregnant or same-sex couples They go to Denmark, for example, because in Denmark there's a lot of midwife practices that offer donor sperm insemination. And so that was an interesting thing. And the last very interesting, like it was a very curious law that I thought was also a little bit subject to interpretation, was that it was written somewhere in the legislation that when you assist a couple with conception, there should be a reasonable expectation that both parents, so the father and the mother, reach the baby's, so the, the, their child's 18th birthday, which, you know, was supposed to mean like if, if, if one of them has like terminal cancer or is like 97 years old, then in your judgment, there's not a reasonable expectation that both parents will live to the uh, child's 18th birthday and therefore you should not provide fertility services. How do you, uh, how, do, how can you ever really assess that these two people that are wanting to become parents will reach the 18th birthday. Like, where do you draw the line? If you have a overweight uh, type two diabetic with a BMI of 50 in front of you, you know, how do you know? Is is this person gonna live another 18 years? So anyway, so there were some laws that were, in my opinion, a little bit uh, almost patronizing. And, of course, that changes the way that you practice. And so then there were a lot of, uh, for example, egg donation wasn't allowed either. So then there was a lot of Swiss people who would then uh, travel abroad for fertility services. So if they're single or same-sex and they needed donor sperm, they would usually go to Denmark. And if they were advanced maternal age or decreased ovarian reserve, premature ovarian insufficiency, they would travel to either Spain or the Czech Republic.
2: Mm-hmm it's it's what you're pointing out is the is how all of the potential ethical questions meeting with the public meeting with legislation can come to affect the standard of care and that plays out in different areas when you have Different legislators and different electorates, and different concerns among the constituents. It's, I guess, in on one hand, it's sort of refreshing to know that everybody's struggling with this, and it's not just our country. I, when I see other speakers from other countries that share their frustration, I can deceive that we're not the only one. I had Melissa Brisman on the show, a reproductive health attorney here in the United States, and she mentioned. And one of her ethical concerns is that in many states, in many cases, we don't have a, an age limit for, for parents to talk about the exact scenario that, that you talk about or the, the potential for one. So that the, there's this real gamut that can change based on, based on politics, based on fellowship programs, and that plays into how care is delivered. Can you also talk a little bit about just how patients are different, just, and this would be more anecdotal, but how do you notice patients differ from place to place? And then what are the common themes that you always see as being the same?
0: Well, I think that, uh, as a, as a, so obviously, you know, depending on where you practice, you have a slightly different demographic of patients. So you you know the the breakdown of the different causes of infertility, for example, may be slightly different depending on where you practice. I mean, I would say there were certain things that were similar. So, for example, in Switzerland, just like in the United States, you know, uh, sadly we don't have universal access to infertility services. Uh, not universal. You know infertility coverage either, I think in the united states uh, United States I heard at one point that only ten percent for which of patients for who ivF is indicated actually get access to it, and so there is of course uh, a difference in the in the people that end up. You know, presenting to you for, for IVF treatment, and it you know just like in the United States, sadly it's often more middle to upper class educated couples from a certain demographic. And they ask the same questions everywhere. And you know, they they you know like as you probably know, our patients are very educated. They're very good at following instructions because they have this you know, great goal of uh, conceiving, and they're willing to do anything for it. So these were similar themes. I would say one thing that I, I thought was interesting is that infertility in America is a bit more out in the open, you know, nowadays it's normal to speak about it, to blog about it, to post about it on Facebook and Instagram, uh, to, you know, raise awareness for it and, you know, to chat about it, uh, you know, at dinner, you know. And, you know, everybody, like, I feel like almost everybody knows somebody who went through IVF and people are a little bit more open and public about it. I would say in Germany and Switzerland, I've noticed that people are a little bit more private about it. They're almost a little secretive. They, you know, this, this is something that they're almost like a little bit embarrassed about. IVF might have still been associated with a bit more of a stigma. You know, like you, you don't necessarily want to share more with your peers and your family than you have to that is one thing that I've noticed about the patients. But basically, other than that, I've, I would say patients ask the same questions everywhere. What, what happened in Basel, one thing that was like really quite refreshing and inspiring was it's a very international city. So there are several pharmaceutical companies that are based and headquartered in Basel. So I had patients from all over Europe. And, I, you know, it could be that in, in one afternoon, I would have to speak Spanish, Italian, French, and English, you know, with various, People, because you know it's such a great mix of of, of a very international uh, population. So that that was very fascinating. But at the at the core of it, uh, people have the same type of questions. One thing I've noticed, like for example, as you know, as you probably know, as a a population, Switzerland is much less obese than the United States. So for example, you know, the United States. I would say when I saw patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, eighty percent plus were obese and for example at the University of Oklahoma where I had a more of a younger patient population you know patients patient who were you know under like a lot of patients under 30 it seemed like in Oklahoma people have more pressure for you to conceive earlier than maybe on the coast so most of my PCOS patients in the United States but specifically in Oklahoma were obese or overweight uh, as a majority in uh, in Basel, actually, I saw like I I you know all of my PCOS patients were more lean PCOS, so I would say less obesity in Europe, although it does exist. So that was definitely a difference.
3: Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before for good or for bad. And you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic it's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes there is no downside to doing this for your practice only upside now back to inside reproductive health
2: those cultural differences really can change the way one practices or the way one distributes information. Because one of the things that I've, I've seen recently, there's uh, some fertility doctors that have talked about this on social media. And I've had the conversation with a few practitioners and clinically, I can't contribute enough to where the conversation is going, but, but I hear them talking about obesity and the way we address it and the way we treat it. And one of their concerns is that there's just so much outside of people's control that the ways in which we counsel on obesity should be much different from how they have been. Hearing you talk about a different experience in Europe, it seems to me that perhaps it is something that's more, Cultural, or that there are variables that can be controlled for.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, obesity is a is a problem all over the uh, in every almost in every developing countries, but it's particularly an epidemic in the in the United States. And I do think that it's our responsibility to talk to our patients at length and without judgment and in a very empathic and uh, friendly and nurturing and inviting way about ways to work on it. And I have always made it a big focus of my practice to to help and assist patients with that without making them feel uncomfortable. And so that was definitely less of a focus in, in Switzerland. And there, uh, you know, we had the, the whole spectrum uh, of infertility diagnoses, male factor, was a big part of it unexplained infertility and actually unexplained infertility i mentioned in my article that one practice difference is that you know in the united states like our bread and butter first line approach for unexplained infertility is intrauterine insemination And so, you know, this is what I've been taught over the years. And basically, you know, after, you know, attempting to conceive for 12 months or more in a patient, in a couple that has unexplained infertility, you offer intrauterine insemination. So in Europe, there's a lot of discussion about this because, you know, the professors there that are like some of the, uh, you know, biggest names in the field. You know, I saw lectures, for example, by a professor from Holland that said that, uh, you know, IUI is a waste of everybody's time, that basically it's no better than regular intercourse. And he actually made this interesting analogy. He cited a novel by an author called Céline, a novel called Voyage au bout de la nuit. And uh, he basically, in that novel, there's a quote that since most diseases resolve spontaneously after five days, the smart doctor starts to prescribe medication on day three. And so he made that quote to basically say, well, right around the time when we recommend to have IUI is when that couple would get pregnant anyway. Now, I find that really hard to believe, and luckily, you know, and, and I had some academic discussions about this with some of the people in the field f- from Europe, luckily, right around the time that I was actually in, in Basel, a randomized controlled trial did come out that finally showed, because they, they always argued argue that there was no randomized controlled trial evidence demonstrating that IUI does anything for unexplained infertility. And it was interesting because in England... The National Institute for Healthcare Excellence, or NICE, advised that IUI should no longer be offered. And then there was was a, was, a, was a study that, guess what, showed that 96% of fertility clinics ignored that recommendation, probably because deep inside they felt like it was effective. So, any, anyway, th- th- that was very interesting to me because I feel like. What did the you on control show? So, that was actually one from uh, New Zealand. They did show that IUI. Was superior to intercourse alone in unexplained infertility. So you know, I feel like that was a step in the right direction to prove that maybe we shouldn't do away with intrauterine insemination just yet, as Nice had recommended.
2: There's another culture. You talked a little bit about the differences within patients: less obesity in Europe, younger patients in Oklahoma, some older patients in cities on the coast. I see a cultural differences on a cultural difference on social media, both with practices that we've worked with clients and those that aren't. But if you look at the most powerful social media presences in infertility at the practice level, not the physician level, but at the practice level, many of them are from Midwest smaller markets. And my hypothesis is, it's because these places are are more tied into I, I feel comfortable saying this because i'm from buffalo new york it's less about career here than it is on the coast it's more about family and so the pressure that puts on potential patients is a bit different not that both don't have patients but it also adds a community aspect of it so if i'm looking at cincinnati or michigan or buffalo and some of these smaller midwest markets i see massive social media presences that I need to spend a ton of money on advertising and content creation and getting other things to going to replicate when I have clients on the, the coast. And so I wonder if, if you've seen that sort of maybe community or family focus versus a uh, career focus. Of course, there's both in both small markets and large markets. But I wonder if you've seen that difference and if that plays at all into how you interact with patients.
0: No, I absolutely saw that. I mean, i I, you know, so, and patients would tell me that. So like I had 28 year old patients in Oklahoma telling me that both of, both of the spouse's families had started to freak out that she was 28 years old and didn't have a baby yet. And that she was the only one in her community who wasn't a mother yet. And so I think that, you know, people put definitely different emphasis on family and when to have children in different places and of course that's also depending on education and career aspirations and so on but I definitely think that the average age of our patients at the University of Oklahoma was a little bit lower definitely than in Los Angeles or in Boston or now here in San Diego I mean I I will never forget in my fellowship at USC there was a, a couple uh, both 43 years old, both uh, with like striving careers, and they literally said to me, "Yeah, we just just about a month ago we started thinking about maybe uh, starting a family." And so, I mean, I obviously didn't say this, but I was like, "Well, wh- what have you been thinking about in the last 10 years?" I mean, this is this should not be something that you start thinking about at age 43. But obviously, the the outlook is very different in, in in different places. But I think that obviously you can't just generalize this. So I'm sure that even in, in, in the in the greater area of Boston. There are some people who are more family minded and some people who are more career minded. And I do think that, you know, with the awareness of fertility, maybe there are also more people who place more of an emphasis on creating a family or starting a family earlier even if you know there's never really a right moment because I mean I tell my patients that you know like having children I mean when is there ever like a perfect moment for it so but I I do think that there were differences in different places and then of course with respect to coverage within the United States there's a lot of differences so for example at the University of Oklahoma unfortunately there was no mandate so in, in the state of Oklahoma there's no mandate for infertility coverage whereas in Massachusetts so you know Boston when when I was working in Boston, there, there's a mandate to cover infertility services. And that really changes the treatment, and it also changes the general management of uh, patients. So in this paper that I wrote, I I mentioned that, for example, with respect to whether to remove or not remove a tube at the time of a ectopic pregnancy was a big practice difference that I witnessed from residency to fellowship. So in my residency, you know, 98% maybe of the surgeries for ectopic pregnancy, that we did was involved removing the tube. So that means you have a slightly lower natural fertility in the future, but also, a low risk of that ectopic coming back. At USC, where, you know, that's another patient population that we took care of that was, you know, at the county of Los Angeles, we took care of a lot of underserved patients who, you know, and sometimes illegal or illegal residents who covered for their health care there, and, but who didn't Necessarily have access access to the full spectrum of infertility services, and for example, would be most likely not to be, uh, be able to afford IVF. So, in those patients, you know, we had like discussions at the M M&M M conferences, and if somebody ever took out a tube, that was like a high crime. So, because you know, you wanted to preserve fertility for these patients, and you accept the fact that they might have a slightly higher risk of another ectopic while trying to preserve the natural fertility because that's most likely the only option that they have. And so, likewise, in the treatment of unexplained infertility, we usually have a sequence, okay, a couple tries at home, timed intercourse, then you try IUI cycles, and then if that doesn't work, you go to IVF. In Massachusetts, the insurances regulate how many IUIs you have to do before you're eligible for IVF, and so that's usually what people do. For example, again, at the University of Oklahoma, you know, price-wise, an IUI cycle was about $600 maybe, and an IVF cycle 15000 So because the population of Oklahoma is not, you know, the, the most affluent, oftentimes patients would want to do five or six or seven IUI cycles before maybe considering IVF. So that was definitely a practice. And there I observed. a
2: number of insurance plans that might call for the same, if any United or Aetna reps are listening there are certain plans that, that call for the same before someone can have IVF coverage so it does it does and and I do see that change what providers are New York state providers for example will do far more IUI than most other people because the mandate up to this point has has covered has insurance covering IUI but not IVF. I can't let this interview end, Alex, until we talk about. We've talked about the differences in the delivery of care. We've talked about the differences in more common patient habits, but I want to talk about the choices which affect where doctors decide to live. This is a conversation that you and I have had at PCRS a few times, and it started, I think, when you when you moved back to Southern California. You talked about moving back for the quality of life. And I think of Southern California, for example, and gorgeous weather almost year round. And to me, that's where the quality of life ends. And so I I really do want to unpack this because I see many REIs moving to the coastal cities, fewer moving to the smaller markets, and... Uh, And I wonder, and and so I want to talk about what that quality of life is, because to me, if you're a top 20% wage earner in a small market, you are royalty. You send your kids to the nicest private schools. You can go to the big cities whenever you want. You have a nice house. There's probably a cool lake or beach or forest community that you can buy a summer home in. And even if you are earning Double that in a a larger market, you're still paying... Triple, for your, triple or quadruple for your cost of living and you're stuck in traffic even if you live miles from home. So I want to talk about what quality of life means because I definitely see it. I, I definitely see a pattern of, of where doctors are going and I want to hear more from you.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. A very interesting question. And so one people, some people might ask, well, why, why did this guy move around so much? Why, why did they keep uh, going to different places? And of course, you know, life happens. You don't plan everything ahead of time. So I'd always had this dream of doing my residency in the United States and specifically in Boston. And so I did that and then moved out to L.A. for fellowship to USC and really enjoyed my time there. But exactly what you just mentioned happened that, you know, the big city, lots of traffic and long commute potentially. So spending hours in traffic rather than spending time with your kids, high cost of living with, you know, high high. Price for housing. And so all this did make it very attractive for us to move to the University of Oklahoma when we had this opportunity. My wife is an OBGYN too. And so we both uh, were able to get a faculty position in the same department. So it's a perfect setup. And we really did have a wonderful life there. We we did, you know, we did have great friends and, you know, very high quality of life. And the, the people of Oklahoma are extremely friendly. And, you know, I loved my colleagues. I loved my staff. Patients were wonderful. We, we basically moved back to Europe to be a little bit closer to family. And then because of the Then, you know, the quality of life in Europe was excellent and we were close to our families, but then the professional aspects were not as satisfying. Like, for example, if I can't do egg donation treatments, if I can't offer to treat single or same-sex patients, if I cannot, like, have access to the full spectrum of opportunities, then that is definitely downside. And then, of course, the other factor for moving back to the United States was also that my wife's professional home is also more here than in, in Europe. And she learned German, which is wonderful, but still in the system over there, you know, it was harder to, to get a footing. So when we made a decision to move back to the United States, we did take all those aspects into account. And I do think that the quality of life... So, so you know, one thing, you know, when I was living in Oklahoma, I had a friend who was there uh, living there from England and he made a restaurant analogy. So because he was saying the people in Oklahoma, they always say, ah, you know, I never get stuck in traffic because the roads are always empty and the houses are cheap. And so he was saying, well, guess what? When you go to a restaurant and the restaurant is empty, that's because nobody wants to eat there. So. You know, at the end of the day, so there is something about the quality of life in the different places. And, you know, the reality is, you know, when you live in Oklahoma and you have relatives from Europe, only your very closest and most dearest relatives will come to visit you. When you live in San Diego, I mean, uh, every week somebody will visit you. So (laughs) that's sort of the difference. And then the other thing, so Oklahoma was a wonderful time, but also, you know, frankly, states that have no restrictions uh, with respect to gun laws, for a European like me and my wife, it's scary. I don't want my children to walk around and, and know that everybody around them is carrying a gun and that the kids in the playground are obsessed with guns already. So that was one of the other things. And so then also with the current political climate, I don't think it's very hard to know where I stand because you know I'm from Europe. The other current president, is I'm not a major fan. So the political attitudes and the cultural differences within the United States, obviously, we're a factor two for us. But I understand your point. If you're purely about making maximum amounts of money and living in as big of a house as you can, then you should rather move to Texas than to California.
2: I don't even think maximum amounts of money, but just I, I just don't see where the extra time or the, where the extra things are. So I do. I have one client in, in Seattle and I would talk with him and he loves he loves shows, music show of, of bands that are both up and coming in in certain fringe scenes. And so I, I, so I guess if, if there's something like that, for example, where there's so many of them and you go so frequently, then it makes sense. But I just wonder, yeah, I, I think of myself as a guy who spends most of my week, I spend most of my week working, I spend the rest of my time traveling. I don't have a lot of time for the extra stuff, the sp- the, the time that I do have extra for, there's enough nice restaurants, there's enough museums, there's enough, you know, there's Broadway shows and professional sports teams here. And then if I want anything extra, then I just go to Toronto or New York or LA. But there's not enough of the extra to me to justify, for one, the traffic, to the extra cost of living when I, it's, it's not even about money. I think most people will have more time with their families in a smaller market.
0: I agree with you 100%. And so, for example, I agree with you that, for example, if you live in Manhattan, in New York, and you have all this wonderful culture, it's not like you you go to a Broadway show three times a week. And at the end of the day, the life of a busy person, busy professional with children is the same everywhere. You know, you go to work in the morning, you work all day, you come home, you make dinner for your kids, maybe you have dinner with your kids, you read them a story. And then you watch a little bit of TV or like work a little bit on your computer or something, and then you go to bed. So you could do that in. Wyoming or in New York or in uh, Delaware. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's just that when you're in New York, you pay a much higher price for it than when you're in a, a less populated and less quote unquote, desirable place. But that is also one of the reasons why like m- my wife basically said uh, she would like to either go back to Boston or to Southern California. And so San Diego is a little bit less congested. It's a little bit less expensive than L.A. So I do think that for Example within Southern California, San Diego has a better quality of life than LA, and so it's a little bit more of the advantages that we had at the University of Oklahoma.
2: Well, the fact is that many of the people that I'm talking to agree with yourself and your wife by the way that they're voting with their feet. When I talk to most of the fellows at DCRS or at MRSI, they're going to often to bigger programs, and usually in the coastal cities and you, you can give Chicago an asterisk to lump them in with the coastal cities, but I don't see a whole lot of people going to the Oklahomas or the Ohio's or the Buffalo, New York's or the Nebraska's. And mm-hmm. I've talked about this, uh, about this uh, maybe brain drain or issue with delivery to care with David Sable with Rob Kilt. But do you see, this as being a problem in how we are able to do you see a a tale of two countries even more where a certain group has access to better care because that's where all the doctors are because there are fewer younger doctors who want to move to the other places.
0: I definitely think that can be a problem because, uh, you know, I mean, in places like LA or New York, on every street corner, seemingly there's a fertility practice opening up and maybe there's more, at some point, more supply than demand. Whereas in other places, you know, I mean, I seem to remember papers that showed the density of REI physicians per population, according to the United States. I definitely think that that is an issue. That is, and, you know, I do think that for somebody who, is graduating from fellowship, looking to open a practice. If they're a little bit geographically flexible, then I think it's a it's a great move to start a practice in a place where there's more unmet demand than uh, in the same place where there's already 20 other practices around. So I do think that those are points to be weighed against each other. And uh, you know, for us, this has been a process that we've talked about a lot but for example like I mean in my specific example like for example in San Diego there's a German school like a German immersion school for my kids where I can have them be on a bilingual German school that was a big factor so these type of things may not necessarily be found in smaller places naturally
2: well we have talked a lot about the differences in patient habits between countries and continents between the delivery of care, between how doctors make their choices to live in different areas. As Quass, well how would you want to conclude with regional differences in fertility care?
0: Well, I just would like to say that, you know, in summary, what I've noticed is that Where you're born and where you live when you're trying to conceive matters enormously in maybe your chances to make your dreams come true if you have, if you're struggling with infertility because you may live in a place where the standard of care is higher or lower or where certain treatments are available or unavailable. And so I think that is, you know, like to me, that was something that I hadn't realized as much when I first started. And so as a patient, I think there are massive differences where you live. And, you know, this is uh, highlighted by the fact that so many people in Germany and Switzerland travel, have to travel to Spain to, to do egg donation, you know, like because egg donation is something that hasn't really found its way into the legislation it's still illegal in both countries and you could wonder why is sperm donation at least to a certain extent allowed and not egg donation and so on. Also, genetic testing is another thing that we haven't mentioned yet. So one of the reasons why in Germany there is a bit of an ethical discussion about this is, of course, Germany. Everybody knows the history of Germany and what happened in the Holocaust and the Second World War. And there was a you know very dark period of time where there was a eugenic movement and things like that. And so the reservations about genetic testing in Germany come from you know, very complicated historical circumstances and that leads to the situation where it's more progressive in some ways and then less progressive in others. So as a patient, I think you definitely have access to very different services depending on where you live. And then as a physician in our field, maybe more than in any other field, the difference is which services you're allowed to offer. And so I think that was the main finding of my career so far.
2: And you have found out from doing it in person and from traveling and living and working and experiencing it firsthand as well as comparing it against the data. And thank you for sharing that experience with us today on Inside Reproductive Health. Dr. Alex Quast thank you for coming on to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Griffin.